Then Yahweh told Moshe, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. You must make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats as well as your cattle. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. We attach verse 25 to that. I really haven't went over verse 25 in detail. But verse 25 is attached to this section because it gives you an optional altar to make. You can make an altar of earth or it says if you make a stone altar for me, you must not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. Exodus 20, verses 22 through 25. I want to go over a secondary verse to open with today, and this will be the one we're centering in on in the lesson. Leviticus 17, 1 through 9. We'll start with 1 through 5. Yahweh spoke to Moshe, speak to Aaron, his sons, and all the Israelites, and tell them this is what Yahweh has commanded. Anyone from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, sheep, or goat in the camp, or slaughters it outside the camp, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to Yahweh before his tabernacle, that person will be charged with murder. He has shed blood and must be cut off from his people. This is so the Israelites will bring to Yahweh the sacrifices they have been offering in the open country. They are to bring them to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting and offer them as fellowship sacrifices to Yahweh. Verses 6-9, through nine, The priest will then sprinkle the blood on Yahweh's altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting and burn the fat as a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. They must no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted themselves with. This will be a permanent statute for them throughout their generations. Say to them, anyone from the house of Israel or from the foreigners who live among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice but does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to Yahweh, that person must be cut off from his people. May Yahweh bless His Word to our hearts today. So, no matter what position you take on any given subject in the Scriptures, you will find verses, if you are honest and diligent in your study, you will find verses that do not fit as well into your belief system as you would like them to. You'll find some that seem like fit hand in glove and other ones you'll think, I don't know how that one exactly fits. Different people study the Bible and come to different conclusions, oftentimes because different verses stick out to them as being the most important. And it all goes back to something known as hermeneutics. That's a big word, isn't it? Hermeneutics. Sounds like a guy named Herman got some ticks on him or something. (laughs) This word refers to the laws or the rules of interpretation, not just biblical interpretation, but we're talking about biblical hermeneutics here. How we go about interpreting Scripture or understanding Scripture. What methods we use, how we arrive at what a text not just says but means. We do this by asking ourselves questions when we read. Who wrote this? Who was it written to? When was it written What's the overall subject? What's the minute subjects within the overall subject? Then we key in on words and their meanings. Phrases and their meanings and context. Both the surrounding context in the Bible. Y'all heard me talk about the 2020 rule that you follow. 2020 vision. If you take a verse, somebody gives you a verse, read at least 20 verses before and 20 verses after. See, 
but also not just the surrounding context, but the cultural context. Because the people that we read about, like in Proverbs 25 and Luke 9, they didn't grow up in America, right? They grew up in over in the old country, as people call it, over in the, the east, not the west. So sometimes we miss understanding things because we try to apply modern culture to ancient culture, and it's not good to do that. Other good rules of interpreting and understanding the Bible are to interpret the unclear text in light of the clear text, interpret the few text in light of the many text. So if you have, let's say, 50 clear verses on a subject and they all jive together with you and there's no problem, then all of a sudden you read them one day and you come across one that seems to say something different. Don't overturn the 50 by the one. Make the one harmonize with the 50. See, that's another example of good hermeneutics. Also in Bible study, you take direct commands over examples. Examples of people, I'm talking about Hebrew people doing things can be either approved or disapproved. Somebody asked me this week, what about this particular Hebrew man who did this? I told him, let me remind you that just because a Hebrew man did something did not make it right. They were sinners like we are. They transgressed the laws like we have. <laughs> so you can't just take an example. Now if you have an approved example, an example where a Hebrew man does something and Yahweh is pleased with it, you can take that to the bank. But direct commands from Yahweh are always paramount in Bible interpretation. There's other things to consider, but these are some of the big ones. So the two texts that I read to open the lesson today are both direct commands from Yahweh, where Yahweh spoke. The Exodus text is Yahweh speaking at Mount Sinai just after He gave the Ten Commandments. I don't think it's a difficult text. Make an altar of earth, sacrifice, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings. He'll come to you and He'll bless you in every place or place says that He causes His name to be pronounced or remembered or memorialized. And then when we look through Scripture, both before this command and after this command, we find approved examples of men doing exactly that and then being blessed just like Yahweh said. So I don't think it's a difficult verse. But then we come to the Leviticus text because any good Bible student, especially Bible teacher, will not ignore anything that the Bible has to say. They'll spend time studying the text that seem to go in opposition to the position that they take. If they don't, it's probably not a good teacher. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you be teachers, knowing you incur a stricter judgment. Right. So the Leviticus text that we read, it seems like it goes contrary to everything that I've taught on our first reading of that text. Is Leviticus 17 prohibiting sacrifices apart from the tabernacle, temple, and Levite priest? Now, it's a sobering text because the charge here is murder. If you violate it, you're guilty of murder. That sixth commandment transgression, that's a capital crime. How do we understand Leviticus 17 in light of what we've already learned from Genesis, from Exodus, and from the approved examples we looked at last week with Manoah, David, and Naaman. And they were sanctioned by Yahweh. They received direct commands from Yahweh, either through an angel or a prophet, about making a private altar and a sacrifice. Well, I think that what we've went over so far is many and clear. And so I decided a while back, and here recently as well, to slow down and go back over Leviticus 17, 1-9, study it in more depth, we don't have to throw our hands up. We don't have to say the Bible contradicts itself. We don't have to pit one text against another text. We just need to understand all of them 
in the context in which they were written. So we went over the others in detail. So let's go over Leviticus 17 today in detail. Leviticus 17, 1 through 4 again, Yahweh spoke to Moshe, speak to Aaron, his sons, and all the Israelites and tell them, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Anyone from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, sheep, or goat in the camp or slaughters it outside the camp instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to Yahweh before His tabernacle, that person will be charged with murder. He has shed blood and must be cut off from His people. It's very serious here with a murder charge. I've actually had somebody oh, a couple years back send me this text when they found out that I sacrificed or slaughtered a lamb for Passover. They sent me this text. So it's a serious charge. I'm not sure if they were saying I was guilty of murder. I'm not sure if they were just wanting my opinion on it. And I gave it to them. Didn't really hear anything back from them. But they must have viewed my actions as a violation of this particular command. But I want to remember the context here, okay? Let's do some hermeneutics. <laughs> Look at the context. This was first spoken to the Israelites in the wilderness. They were at this point camped at Mount Sinai. They were still early on in the wilderness wanderings. It's the second year of their wilderness wanderings. Uh, you can easily show this by reading the last chapter of Exodus, Exodus 40, which is on the new moon in the second year of the wilderness. They set up the tabernacle, and then even though a new book starts in Leviticus, a new subject and thought does not start. It just goes right on through. Leviticus 1.1 finishes right there where Exodus 40 stops. It just flows. That's the context uh, in the time period that we're talking about. And they're commanded here in the wilderness, second year. How many years were they in the wilderness? Forty, Forty years in the wilderness. They wandered. Probably felt like a lifetime to them. And they're commanded in the wilderness, do not slaughter an ox, sheep, or goat without first bringing it to the entrance of the tabernacle. Why? Why? Verse 4 tells us. It tells us, in order to present it as an offering to Yahweh. That's the purpose. Now, Key in on this. The reason Yahweh wants it brought there is to make certain it's presented to Him. Now, what many people miss here in this verse or verses is the word slaughter. The Hebrew word here is shachat with that nice chet we were talking about in Bible study. Now, this word shachat or slaughter is not limited to a religious ceremonial sacrifice which... Those ceremonial sacrifices carry regulations for not only how the animal is killed, but also who can eat the animal, how long it may be eaten, what particularly is to be done to the animal while you slaughter or after the slaughter. I want you to think here, this will help you, think here of the Passover lamb. You have to be ceremonially clean to slaughter it. No bone may be broken of it while you slaughter it. You have to cook it whole with the head, the legs, and the inner organs. It can only be eaten on that one night. And if you bring it into a house, you can't carry aught out of the house to different places. You have to keep it in that same house. That's a ceremonial offering. That's a ceremonial sacrifice. Now think about that versus, let's say, you slaughter a cow on your property to put meat in your freezer for a while. That's a slaughter it's not a ceremonial sacrifice. You don't have to worry about the bones. You can cut the head off. You don't have to just eat it the one night. You can eat it all winter long or ever how long it's in your freezer. See, Both are clean animals. The Passover lamb and the cow, both are slaughters, but only the Passover is technically a ceremonial sacrifice or we might say a special slaughter. 
still a slaughter, but it's a special slaughter. Now, here's a few examples of the Hebrew word shachat, showing that it doesn't always mean sacrifice, but it can just mean to slaughter. The first one is Genesis 37-31, where Joseph's brothers killed a kid of the goats. Why? So they could dip Joseph's coat in the blood and pretend to their father that he'd been killed by a wild animal. That wasn't a ceremonial sacrifice. It was just a kill, just a slaughter. Numbers 11.22, the word is used of killing flocks and herds for the daily feeding of the people of Israel in the wilderness. In 1 Kings 18, verse 40, it says that Elijah, the prophet Eliyahu, he slew, Shachat, the prophets of Baal. It's definitely not a ceremonial sacrifice there. He's killing the prophets of Baal. And then here's a peculiar one. In Jeremiah 9, verse 8, it is used metaphorically as a tongue which speaks deceit. And it likens the tongue that speaks deceit as an arrow that is shot out, Shachat. Uh, that has to do with the arrow piercing, killing, slaughtering, the tongue that speaks deceit. So the word shachat can be used in contexts where there is a religious ceremonial sacrifice being talked about. That is not what the word means in and of itself. The word just means to kill, or in the sense of an animal, to slaughter. And since a ceremonial sacrifice has to be slaughtered, those sacrifices fall under the category of shachat, but not all shahat fall under the category of a ceremonial sacrifice. Hopefully you understand what I'm saying. Now, in Jewish history, there were two rabbis who took opposing views on Leviticus 17. Now, this is early 2nd century. We're talking about like from the year 100 A.D. to 200 A.D. So this is a long time ago. Their names were Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmael. Rabbi Akiva held that Leviticus 17 was only regulating technical sacrifices, special slaughters, and not all slaughters. Rabbi Yishmael held that Leviticus 17 prohibited all sacrifices, including common slaughters. Akiva believed that a later text in Deuteronomy 12 showed that general slaughterings were always permissible locally. Rabbi Ishmael believed that Deuteronomy 12 rescinded a temporary restriction so that while in the wilderness, you were to bring all slaughters of domestic animals to the tabernacle. But after you enter the land, you can now slaughter and eat within your gates. Now, it should be noted here, let me mention this, that in one sense, all slaughtered animals are sacrifices. In that, the animal has to lose its life, even in a general slaughter for the provision of food for a person or persons. And even with general slaughters in the Bible, if we're part of the covenant of Yahweh, if we'd agreed with Yahweh to obey His instructions, even with a general slaughter, we may not eat the blood or the certain special fat portions of these animals. So you can find this in Leviticus 17 and also in Leviticus 7. Now, Leviticus 17 verse 3 uses the word shachat when speaking of what was brought or what was to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. According to the overall meaning of this word, it was not just ceremonial sacrifices that had to be brought to the tent of meeting in the wilderness. It was all domestic animals that would be slaughtered in the wilderness. Thus, I believe that Rabbi Ishmael was correct and Rabbi Akiva had missed this one. Now, here's the point. See if you can see this as I tie the loop. If you're going to use this text to teach against, let's say, slaughtering a lamb for Passover, 
then you have to equally use this text against slaughtering a cow on your property or a local farmer's property for the purpose of putting meat in your freezer to last you and your family for a while. Do you see the point? Because 17 says not just the zabak, which we'll get into in a second, have to be brought, but the shachat, all the slaughters, have to be brought. But there's more. There's more. This is where it gets interesting. What's the reason for this command? Leviticus 17, verse 5, it says, This is so the Israelites will bring to Yahweh the sacrifices they have been offering in the open country. This is important. The sacrifices they've been offering in the open country is what Yahweh wants to get away from here, and He wants them to bring them to the tabernacle to present them to Yahweh, to Him. They are to bring them to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting and offer them as fellowship sacrifices to Yahweh. Now, in this particular verse, the word zebach is used, which is a stronger word in Hebrew for ceremonial sacrifice. The point of the command to bring all oxen, sheep, and goats to the tabernacle in the wilderness is so that no matter what domestic animal is slaughtered, it will be brought to Yahweh. Whether it's a special slaughter or an ordinary slaughter, no slaughtering will be left out or questioned if all of them are brought to the entrance of the tabernacle. All slaughter that is done for religious ceremonial sacrifice will be covered if all domestic slaughterings are brought to the tabernacle. Leviticus 17, 6-7 continues. It says again, The priest will then sprinkle the blood on Yahweh's altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting and burn the fat as a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. This is important. Verse 7, we'll talk about it a little bit. They must no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted themselves with. This will be a permanent statute for them throughout their generations. Now, if you make notes in your Bible, you can make a note from verse 5 to verse 7 because the open country in verse 5 is equivalent with the goat demons in verse 7. But why in the world are the goat demons all of a sudden mentioned? If you're reading the Bible, you're in Leviticus, you're going through the sacrifice, and all of a sudden, goat demons. If you're an old King James Version reader, devils. Goat demons is probably a better translation. Devils isn't bad, but it's not the best. Now first, it's important here to notice the continued reason for the command. Remember, verse 5, we want to get out of sacrificing in the open country. Verse 7, we want to prohibit the Israelites from offering their sacrifices to the goat demons. The goat demons, or the devils in the KJV, is the Hebrew word sayir, or serim in the plural, and it has to do with a shaggy or hairy male goat. Oftentimes it's used in the Torah just for a goat. For example, one chapter earlier in Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement chapter. In verse 27 it says, the goat for the sin offering. It isn't talking about a demon there. Just a goat. Okay, that's the word sayir or serim in the plural. So why is it translated as devils or goat demons here in Leviticus 17 verse 7? The Bible background commentary by John Walton, also Matthews and Havalis, it says here in part, quote, the term most likely refers to satyr-like demons who are believed to haunt the open fields and uninhabitable places, end of quote. This is tied to what many scholars believe Leviticus 16 and verse 8 refers to, which is a reference to Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. For instance, in the CEV, Leviticus 16, verse 8, it says this. 
Yahweh speaking, where I will show you which goat will be sacrificed to me and which one will be sent into the desert to the demon Azazel. The JPS Torah commentary on Leviticus suggests that there is a thematic relationship between the Azazel of Leviticus 16 and the goat demon of Leviticus 17, verse 7. Now, I'd like to play a little clip here from two professors of the Bible. Uh, one is Dr. Sean McDowell. He's the young guy. And then on the left is Dr. Michael Heiser. And this is a clip from a wonderful discussion that was probably about 75 minutes long about Dr. Heiser's book called Demons. Now, <laughs> I know we probably heard a lot about demons. I know I did growing up. heard a lot about demons, but didn't really hear much exegesis about it. This is the book to get right here. If you want to study that subject, this is where you, where you need to go. It's a great book for us lay people. And Dr. Michael Heiser wrote it. He's written a lot of good books. We need to keep him in prayer. He's a good Christian brother. He's doing battling cancer right now. He's got pancreatic cancer. So we need to pray for, for him. He's done a lot of good work in the field of uh, theology in the spiritual realm. And part of that in the wilderness wanderings, you know, when, when they do Leviticus 16 with the, the scapegoats, okay, the, the, the two goats. Yep. The one that's killed, the, the blood is applied to the sanctuary, you know, sprinkled on the ark and all that kind of stuff. It, you know, it, it decontaminates the sanctuary. It's never applied to people. But I, I could go, we could go for a couple hours on how we misunderstand the sacrificial system, okay? Sure. The Day of Atonement was like hitting the reset button. Like think of your computer analogy. Okay, hit the button. Now it's restored to its pristine condition like when it was made, ready for another year of use. Okay, so it decontaminates sacred space. And then the other goat is not killed, but the high priest lays his hands on the head of the goat and they send it out of the camp into the wilderness. Well, of course you'd send it into the wilderness because that's where all the anti-Eden stuff is. Sin doesn't have a place in Yahweh's sacred domain. So of course you send it out. Mm. You know, and again, there's a lot of you know, crime and punishment and certain laws that are in Leviticus that illustrate the same concept. And this is not a ransom to, to Satan. You know, the Leviticus 16 says the second goat was for Azazel, which is a, it's not only a name of a demon in second temple literature, it's a Satan figure in second temple intertestamental literature. But even before that, it was a demonic you know, figure, that, that term. Okay. It's not a, it's not a ransom or a sacrifice to this other deity because it's not killed. Okay. It's just driven away to where that, that, where the bad things are. Okay. The bad things are outside of Yahweh's sacred space where his presence is. There's life. There's abundance. It's wonderful. You know, we're, we're on the way to, to a land that flows with milk and honey. Again, it's supposed to make you think of Eden, all right? There's this wonderful place. And, and on, on the way, you know, we're, we're all together collectively in the camp of Israel. But outside the camp, ooh, we don't want to be outside the camp. Because that territory is not sacred space to Yahweh, is it? You know, and again, they get defined, it gets defined as the opposite, all this oppositional, you know, kind of sure. thinking. So, of course, they, they drive it out, you know, because that's where sin belongs. It doesn't belong here. And, and of course, when Satan, when, when, when Jesus encounters Satan, the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Well, where else would you expect to find Satan? Of course, he's out there. You know, he's not, again, in, in sacred space, the holy, you know, and, 
all, you know, Jerusalem, you know, it, again, it's, it's oppositional binary kind of thinking. Yep. It's there to illustrate Eden and anti-Eden. Now, among the Israelites, what this is, is a carryover from the worship in Egypt. I want you to think here for a second to set this up to the episode of the Golden Calf in Exodus 32. The Israelites were trying to worship Elohim through the image of the calf because they inherited this form of worship from being in Egypt for so long. Well, the same thing was done in Egypt through the image of the goat. The male shaggy goat was seen as a representation of a demon deity and thus the Egyptians would erect statues or statues of goats across their nation. Now, this is actually where the popular image of the devil comes from. With the horns, a goatee, and cloven feet, and a tail. This is where it comes from. Some cultures call the goat demon Pan, P-A-N. Our English word panic comes from the Greek word panikon. Panicon actually means pertaining to pan, and the reason that we came to use it in the sense of panic is because it goes back to the fear that was struck in one's heart when the goat deity Pan appeared to them. They were scared and they panicked. That's where we get that word from. Now, this false worship had become ingrained among the Israelites because they stayed a long time in Egypt. You can take the Israelite out of Egypt, but you can't always take Egypt out of the Israelite. <laughs> Amen? Amen? So it takes them a while. They'd often, because of this, they would perform syncretism. That's a fancy word that means you blend the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other Elohim. Thus, the golden calf in Exodus 32 and the goat demons here in Leviticus 17. Now, in the book of Joshua 24:14, after Moshe was passed on and Yehoshua still urges the Israelites, he says this, Get rid of the Elohim your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and worship Yahweh. So they're still struggling with this at the end of the book of Joshua. As a matter of fact, in 2 Chronicles 11.15, it says that Jeroboam appointed his own priest for the high places, the goat demons and the gold calves he had made. You won't find a reference to the goat demons in 1 Kings 12. That's the more popular text about Jeroboam's false feast. But you find the reference to the goat demons here. Leviticus 17 verse 7 says the Israelites must no longer sacrifice to the goat demons, showing that this was still going on to some degree in the wilderness. The command here in verses 1 through 9 to bring all slaughterings to the entrance of the tent of meeting would stop or at least slow down the false worship they inherited from Egypt. Now, I would like to suggest to you today that this command in Leviticus 17, 1-9, was a temporary restriction that was put in place in the wilderness in order to teach the Israelites and get them in the habit of slaughtering and sacrificing only to Yahweh and not using any image, whether a cow or a goat, to try to depict Yahweh and kind of syncretize that worship and bring Egypt out into the wilderness. I used to help Brother TJ coach in the kids' softball league. And I remember one time he asked me to help him coach, and we had the small team, ages five to seven. We had the team where the little girl would sit in the outfield and she'd pick flowers while the game was going on. I remember one time a ball hit her slap upside the head because she wasn't watching, and we had to carry her to her mama. And 
Me and Brother TJ learned a lot of patience that year. Bless your heart. One thing that we were allowed to implement in that particular league was a tee. And you would put the tee on home plate and you set the softball on it. And the softball would sit stationary. So it made it easier for the little five-year-old. David, my son, played and he was five. It made it easier for the little five-year-old to hit the ball. And they felt so great. And they'd hit it and run to first base. And they felt like they climbed Mount Everest or something. You know, I just thought it was so wonderful. So the tee is there to teach them. But the tee doesn't stay in the next level up. You graduate after 5, 6, and 7 at ages 8 through 10 or 8 through 11, I think it might have been, and you hit a moving ball and there's no more T involved. And I think that's what's going on here in the wilderness. There's a temporary legislature whereby Israel has little children who have just exited pagan Egypt. They're learning how to slaughter properly. In the future, they would graduate and be able to do the same slaughtering and stay loyal to Yahweh and not have to worry about the golden calves or the goat demons anymore. And they would be able to do it privately at times due to being in a long journey or persecution or dispersion or distance away from the central worship location in the land of Israel. Now, some people object to this view based on Leviticus 17.7b where we read this will be a permanent statute for them throughout their generation. So, Matthew, you're saying it's temporary. It says it's a permanent. But what that objection fails to recognize is what exactly the permanent statute is. What is permanent is not bringing all the slaughters to the entrance of the tent of meeting, but what is permanent is that Israel not offer their sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted themselves with. That's the connection from 7a to 7b. That's what's a permanent statute throughout their generations. Now, if we continue to read in the Torah, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 15 through 25. And this really is a whole nother sermon, but I want to get it in here in this one in brief. In Deuteronomy 12, 15 through 25, in the 40th year of the wilderness wanderings, shortly before they go into the promised land, there's a second giving of the law. And in verse 15 through 25, it says that there's going to exist a situation where a person was far away from the central location of worship and they were allowed to slaughter and eat meat within their gates, whatever their soul desired. It says in Deuteronomy 12, if you come into the land and you have a strong desire to eat meat, you may do so. Don't tell that to your strict vegetarians. <laughs> I've got myself in trouble with that before. But that's what Deuteronomy 12 says. It just says, make sure do not eat the blood and don't eat the fat portions either. Those belong to Yahweh. The life of the flesh is in the blood and the fat belongs to Yahweh on the altar. Granted, the chapter does say to bring all the burnt offerings, sacrifices, and personal contributions and the tithes and the tithes to the central location of worship. But again, this command is specifically when all the tribes are at rest in the land and a theocracy is in order. Let me make a quick point on Deuteronomy 12.21 on the bottom of the screen, and I'll continue to study this further in my study time. But I want you to notice the phrase, if and then. If the place which Yahweh, your mighty one, shall choose to put His name is too far from you, then you shall kill of your herd and your flock. This is significant. Because it sounds like there is permission given in one situation that would normally be carried out another way if one was in close proximity to the place. If you could always slaughter and eat meat in your gates all the time, then the if-then clause in verse 21 doesn't make any sense. 
But it would make sense that, that you would normally do something one way if you were in close proximity to this central worship place. But you would do something different if you were far away from this central worship place. Now that's significant. That's a technical point that's very important in, in the sermon here. Now, the best harmony that I can see at this time in my life, and I reserve the right to change as Yahweh's Spirit leads and guides me through His Word. Through His Word. I'm not talking about leading and guiding me apart from His Word. <laughs> I'm talking about leading and guiding me through His Word because I don't know everything that there is to know. The best harmony I can see is that in the cases where we're not at rest in the promised land, in a theocracy or a theonomy, and we're either in a Genesis-like environment, too far or far away, or we're in a semi-captivity that private sacrifices may be made, they are permissible. I think that this makes sense of the altar of earth in Exodus 20, 22 through 25. Built in the places, plural, that Yahweh puts His name. Now, some people I know are going to think that I'm stretching Leviticus 17 to say that it's temporary. But let me remind you of this as I close. And this is the sticking point. Let me remind you that this is what the other side says about Exodus 20, 22-24. They say Leviticus 17 is permanent and Exodus 20 is temporary. And the examples in Genesis are temporary. They only lasted up to a certain time. So I guess what you have to do is decide which argument holds more weight. To view Genesis and Exodus 20 as temporary or to view Leviticus 17 as temporary. Now, I've given you my reasons in these lessons for viewing Leviticus 17 as temporary and a big reason is that this view allows for the approved examples of private sacrifices to Yahweh commanded by both angels and prophets that are directly sent by Yahweh. It allows these sacrifices in various locations to breathe freely. Yahweh accepted Manoah's offering in Zorah, David's offering on the threshing floor of Arana, and Naaman's offering in Damascus in a foreign land, along with others like Gideon, Saul, Samuel, a group of Israelites at Mizpah. All of these can be understood best by letting Genesis and Exodus control the general rule of law and Leviticus 17 be a restriction in the wilderness for teaching the Israelites we can't do this to the goat demon anymore. We've got to bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle and only do it to Yahweh. Put the tea in place till you get it. We'll take the tea away and allow these private sacrifices in certain situations to be done. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall think on it day and night. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, but stay on the narrow path. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. Now, Yahweh bless you. I love everybody.